Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. Our town, their future. Please welcome your host, Aaron Menzel. My next guests are domestic violence advocates from Green Haven Family Advocates. This nonprofit agency in Green County provides domestic and family violence services to all persons of Green County. Better Broadhead has actually collaborated on many community projects with this great agency in the past. Please welcome Chandra Pelican, the executive director, Natasha Morgan, bilingual advocate, and Stephanie Butts, teen and child advocate. Welcome, ladies, okay. to the show. And so I thought first we kind of start, um, because I think there's some misconceptions about what domestic violence is. Um, so if you could kind of, not I, it's a huge topic, but if you mm -hmm. could talk about what domestic violence looks like. Yeah. I think um, some of the first things that come to mind of what when you're asking about misconceptions about domestic violence, some of the first things that we usually encounter is um, the belief that's pretty common that domestic violence is just physical abuse and that it looks like, you know, bruises on your face or hand marks on your arm and stuff like that, when domestic violence is actually a myriad of tactics used to gain power and control over someone. So a lot of times there may or may not be physical abuse, but there could be tactics that are co-occurring with physical abuse. So you could have um, someone that is using coercion as far as like using children against someone else or different manipulation tactics like yelling or blaming the other person. Um, there's even financial abuse, like controlling all the money or controlling um, the means of making money so that someone is more vulnerable to being stuck in that relationship. Right, because they can't get out, they can't afford to leave. Right, right. that's a huge barrier um, to leaving. So there's threats and intimidation. Um, sexual violence is also part of domestic violence. And also like who, who can have domestic violence happen to them is, um, I guess, oh, not yeah. widely known or not widely understood that it can it doesn't discriminate. It could be any race of a person either being abused or doing the abuse. It could be any gender, any age. Um, domestic violence happens across economic um, backgrounds, educational backgrounds. It definitely doesn't doesn't happen in just one group of people. Right. And it also doesn't necessarily mean a married man and woman either. Mm -hmm. It can be anyone you live with, anyone you've ever had a relationship with. Marriage doesn't have to be um, the common theme in domestic violence either. Right. It, when it comes to courts or like state statutes, is it that you have to live together for it to be domestic violence? When they look at domestic violence, um, how it's identified is somebody who is living with someone else. Mm -hmm. I think if they're not living together, then it comes in an issue of whether it's battery or assault. Um, so dating violence. Dating, dating violence. Yeah. So, um, or intimate partner violence, as some other people refer to it, so that it's a little more inclusive. Um, is something that's starting to kind of gain traction mm -hmm. now, because a lot of people also have a misconception about whether or not domestic violence can happen to people in the LGBTQ plus community, and it actually has almost a slightly higher rate of happening because people are more likely to think, oh, well, it can't happen to me, 
and then it does. And so the, the reporting is something that I think is a common misconception too, is that people just immediately report. Um, a lot of people don't because they're scared, especially men don't report because mm -hmm. it's somehow going to demasculate them. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot more men would come forward if people were had more of an open conversation about what domestic violence is and that it can happen to anybody. Well, in living in the small community, you know, many times you hear that doesn't happen in this community. Um, my neighbors don't have domestic violence in their home. Um, but when we look at it, you know, domestic violence is hitting all the communities, all families. Um, it, you know, it's people that you wouldn't expect to have domestic violence in their homes um, that, is, that are working with that. Right. But your guys' services aren't limited to something that's reportable to police, correct? No. Okay. And we, um, so we help all men, women, and children, um, which is something that we really try to kind of push across all information um, resources is making sure that they know that women, men, and children are all welcome in our door um, and, you know, helping them with whatever their circumstances are that they're facing at that time. Right. So, Natasha, you kind of touched on um, the control yeah. that occurs, and it kind of happens in a cycle, correct? Yeah. There's, like, a pattern of behavior in domestic violence. Can you, one of you, speak to what that cycle kind of looks like? Yeah, so, um, you know, again, some, some, there's a misconception out there that you know, domestic violence is a result of someone's inability to manage their anger or this, like, emotional issue, but it really is tactics that um, can be laid out in a cycle. And for some people to see that, people especially that have been part of um, receiving the abuse, um, it's pretty eye-opening that there's almost like a science to it, even though the perpetrator may not be that studious about what they're doing, but there definitely is a cycle of... Um, of, or the pattern that keeps people kind of in the web of the abuse. So it's usually, um, you know, the beginning of the relationship can be really marvelous and, you know, you don't see some of the red flags at first. If someone can be on their best behavior and some of your, um, in a relationship more involved or more vulnerable to um, the cycle of abuse. So right. it can be... Um, where an incident could occur. So an incident might be um, the actual abuse itself, so any kind of physical slapping, kicking, punching, something like that, or um, any kind of explosion of showing, like a, like a, I don't know how to say, like showing someone their power or something. The escalation. Like, ex yeah. Right, right. So that is their power over them. Right, so like yeah. a display of power is what right. I'm trying to say. Um, and then right, right following that, where someone may be um, more likely to try to leave or try to get help for their, their partner who's just had this big display of abuse, there's usually the honeymoon stage where the abuser might make promises to change. They might shower them, their partner with like loving gifts, saying right. things, trying making promises, trying to make right. up for yeah. everything. Yeah. And, um, and usually during that stage, there's a huge... Um, feeling of relief for the person that's in the abuse because they really believe that these things are going to change and you know the, um, the person may feel hopeful and ready to forgive their partner and ready to um, have life be great again 
Um, and then there's the tension building phase where they might start to uh, feel like they're walking on eggshells around that abusive person because there are these small displays of um, irritability or nitpicking and yelling, um, withholding affection, everything like that. So during the tension building phase, a, a victim's response might be to attempting to calm um, the person being very either avoidant or very nurturing. Um, try to reason or try to satisfy the person as much as possible um, to avoid the um, acute explosion that is imminent going to occur. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that is a cycle that it all goes through. Yeah. Which explains why, I, I'm not, I used to think this way, why wouldn't someone leave? Right. Well, mm -hmm. that cycle creates like the pathway why they don't leave. There's right. that honeymoon phase, so they think it's okay. going to get better. Um, and then it kind of repeats again. Because they might lack the resources as right, well. Because right. they, they've gotten back into this corner where they think they can't leave this person or something right. terrible is going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. And so they might lack the financial resources or they might lack the ability to just find a place in the area. Because mm -hmm. uh, I know right now in Greene County, the, the housing situation That's is, is, is yeah. pretty slim pickings. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really hard for people to try and get out of that situation. And so mm -hmm. they get stuck in that loop. And one of the, I think one of the biggest barriers that we see coming in um, with victims and survivors here is, you know, children that are involved and the threats that maybe um, the perpetrator has said, you know, you, I'm going to take your children, I'm going, you'll never see your kids, I'm going to turn your kids against you. Mm -hmm. um, and in the state of Wisconsin, it's 50-50 parenting. So, um, you know, kind of outweighing the pros and cons of parenting singly versus with your perpetrator and what that looks like is a huge fear for many victims that come in. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying earlier today, it would be really difficult to know that when you're with the person you can protect your kids, but when they're, it's 50-50, you can't protect your kids when mm -hmm. they're with the perpetrator, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be difficult. And another kind of tangent of domestic violence is teen dating violence. So it's kind of the same cycle, correct, of violence that occurs in teen dating? Yeah, there's really not that much of a difference between right. teen dating violence and adult violence when it comes to the age gap. I think the only real difference that I've seen um, is that they're usually not financially dependent on whoever they're with. They're not in a living situation with them. So it's a little bit easier sometimes for them to feel like they can leave, but at the same time when you're in a rural area and everybody's in the same school and you have a very small group of kids, it's hard to get away from that person if you see them at school every day. Right. So right. There's, there's kind of a weird different dynamic there, mm -hmm. but regardless it's the same pattern of abuse and usually that starts out at a very young age if a person is exposed to that behavior, they might consider that to be what is supposed to be done if mm -hmm. they have a, if right. they have abusive parents they're more likely to probably be abusive themselves mm -hmm. if they aren't getting the help they need right. and so another another kind of difference that kind of ties into that would be that they just they're really influenced by their peers and what they have to say because adults I think tend to be a little more independent and steadfast with the way that they think because I think adults are scared more scared of being wrong it seems mm -hmm. more serious of a consequence whereas a teenager is like well I made a mistake I'm a teenager right um it happens but that doesn't invalidate the fact that they've been through that situation just mm -hmm. because they're young 
and I feel like adults might also dismiss that. Yeah. Like, oh, you're just young, you're making a mistake, you know, you gotta fall flat on your face and pick yourself back up again. And then it kind of invalidates the experience that they've had in, as a survivor of violence, as right. a teenager in a dating situation. Mm-hmm. Well, so, when we consider the statistics, um, one in four relationships are abusive, and that is in teen relationships as well as in marriage relationships or adult relationships. Um, so, and it's also kind of on the verge of changing to one in three relationships. So it's not getting better. Right. Um, but we also know that a lot of times things aren't being reported. And so, you know, the numbers and statistics sometimes can be skewed because of that. But yeah, And even the numbers for last year, the number of reported incidents was 1.5 million high school students nationwide last year experienced domestic violence in some way, shape, or form. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just what's reported. Yeah. So yeah. the number is probably drastically larger than that. Yeah, for sure. Now, what would you recommend, like, parents, teachers look for in signs that a teen is being, um, or is in a violent relationship? Um, a lot of the signs and symptoms are the same, especially with physical mm-hmm. abuse, if they have marks on them right. of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, if they seem more anxious or depressed, because anxiety and depression... Uh, is a lot more common in teenagers nowadays mm-hmm. and I'm glad that it's being addressed more but at the same time it's it's sometimes hard to pick up because some people are better at hiding it than others. Right. Well, um, it's definitely a sign of being in an abusive relationship yeah. if your teen seems more down or anxious now that they're in this relationship or if that partner seems to be controlling or more possessive mm-hmm. or yeah. is constantly messaging them that's right. a huge cue that something's off with the dynamic especially in the social media age where if you know your teenager has their boyfriend or girlfriend asking for all their facebook passwords or their snapchat or they want to know who is and who isn't on their friends list and constantly needing to be in contact with them it's a pretty big red flag or saying you can't go hang out with these people because i don't want you to um a lot of times we also Mm -hmm. see changes in the way they dress so they might start wearing like baggier clothing because their partner might not want them to like show off for other people. Right. Um, so changes in dress, changes in behavior, mm-hmm. um, physical changes, definitely. Many times victims will become isolated, um, whether that's because they're embarrassed of what is happening and they don't want the public or friends or family to know, mm-hmm. or because the perpetrator is threatening them or isolating them by, um, you know, not letting them go out and um, work outside the home right. or not letting them go to meetings for their children or appointments for their children without them being with. Um, so isolation is a, a huge piece of the violence when it comes to, you know, victims reaching out for resources. Yeah. And alongside feeling um, down or depressed that someone might feel when they're in violent relationships, one thing you might notice is if your child or if your student starts to lose interest in extracurricular activities that they used to love or any Mm -hmm. kind of enjoyment they used to get with friends, if that's no longer there, that could definitely be a sign of being isolated or feeling down and feelings of shame, like you mentioned. That's good advice. Um, I think that sometimes it's hard to tell if it's from the relationship or they're, you know, struggling with just some depression or if, like, maybe a friendship is getting to that level where it's a lot abusive where they're kind of controlling what they're doing. But I guess maybe having that 
conversation with your child too. Right, like yeah. um, knowledge about healthy relationships starts a lot of times with children um, or teens in their friendships, and they can mm-hmm. have friendships that have tactics of power and control right. in them, and that's a great time. Um, bef- long before kids start dating, they have friendships that can mirror controlling right. tactics or manipulative yeah. things, and so all those things we have to think about in children long before they ever reach the age where mm-hmm. we think they might start dating or think about right. dating, right? It happens yeah. Later. When we look at communication and, you know, expressing your feelings and, you know, working with little kids on, you know, how do we express our anger? How do we express when we're sad? Um, And then, you know, as they grow older, learning different techniques to how to deal with those feelings. Um, I think it kind of starts from, you know, a very young age and learning how to communicate um, and setting boundaries with different relationships, whether that's with your mom or dad, Mm -hmm. or it's with your sister, brother, or friend, or boyfriend or girlfriend. Right. So you guys do a lot of community stuff, which we can touch on a little bit, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't really understand what an advocate is. So what exactly is your job? So an advocate um, is actually someone who is here to help empower the victim or survivor. Um, we are here to let that make sure that they know their rights, um, whether it's through the civil or criminal process through the courts. Um, if they need to get um, a safety plan put into place, we do that with all the clients coming in just to make sure that they have something put into place if something does happen. Um, in the future. Um, We also help them to navigate through the community resources, um, through medical assistance, um, through food stamps, making sure that they have all of the necessities. When they decide to leave an abusive relationship, many times they don't have anything, um, and they're kind of starting over. So we're able to meet with that client one-on-one, talk to them, and kind of put together um, a plan specifically for their situation because everybody's situations are different. Um, But the major thing that we really strive to uh, make sure that victims and survivors know is that we are here to support them. We are here to make sure that they know their rights. And if they choose to do something totally different, we are still here to support them no matter what they decide. Um, On average... uh, a victim who's leaving a domestic violence situation will leave eight times before they stay away for good. Um, and so we don't ever want anybody to ever feel like we've judged them or that they're not welcome to come back to our door for the 10th time leaving because um, we're here no matter what. We have our 24-hour crisis line that will meet them day or night um, to make sure that they're in a safe place and making sure that they know that we understand what they're going through and we're here to support them. How does teen advocacy look different than like, uh, the other advocates? I think teen advocacy is more about prevention and education than almost anything else, um, or helping people that have been exposed. Like if their parents are in a domestic right. violence situation, that can impact the way that they see the world or themselves, um, or they may sometimes blame themselves and feel like it's their fault. So to make sure that we you know, break that cycle for them, like, hey, you don't have to turn out like this. You're your own person, and you're in charge of your own destiny, and we're here to help you guide yourself through that. And by educating children, you know, from a young age on what healthy behaviors are, what unhealthy behaviors are, 
how to also set your boundaries and make sure that people understand that you know you're your own person and you're in charge of yourself like one thing that I've, I hear a lot of students are uncomfortable about is when like they go to a family gathering mm -hmm. and they're like oh go give your uncle a hug and if you feel uncomfortable and you don't want to give your uncle a hug and they're like no come on do it I can really put you in a really that's weird a spot. Weird, that's a weird situation. But right I think there, that that's yeah. a, you know important to understand mm -hmm. that like even in those situations, mm -hmm. boundaries need to exist, and I think that's something that needs to change in general as people to realize that teenagers and children's children do have boundaries and right. feelings, and that they're very easily impressionable mm -hmm. when it comes to the environment that they're exposed to. Well, and on, you know, on a regular basis, I would say once a year, um, we have a student who will take home the information that they received in their class or at their school, and they'll take it home to their mom or their dad and say, I had this presentation at school, and I see red flags in you, your relationship, and I really think that you should go to Greenhaven and get help or just get resources so that you know what's right and wrong and um, what's available to our family. And so I think that that's really um, an interesting perspective to have the child go home and, I guess, educate the parent, right. um, you know, that there are red flags. And that's pretty impactful, I would think, as a parent for your child Um, and lead groups. We don't. You don't really want to talk about it like it's a class. Like we're right. teaching something. It's more of a open discussion about what's going on in their lives, and it's completely confidential. And they're able to open up if they want to about how they feel. And understanding more about how they feel about things is also educating me as an advocate to understanding how they feel about what's going on. So we teach. Uh, we teach groups on healthy, healthy behaviors um, in relationships, on self-care and stress, um, being resilient, um, having control over your own um, intentions and how you treat other people, and then we do one-on-ones with certain students as well. So it's, you know, they've, they've identified those children as maybe needing that kind of assistance from what the teachers have perceived or okay. what they think and then they kind of gear them towards us so that we can be like hey you know we're here for you and you have a safe place to talk to us and I don't think a lot of people realize that like you can get help regardless um, even if it's just going to a group session in your school or going to a counselor and then maybe getting referred to us through that yeah well, and our role is a little bit different than some of the school um, faculty and um, therapists and counselors that students go to see. Um, advocates are not mandatory reporters. Mm -hmm. And so if a student has a situation that maybe they're facing that they're just trying to figure out, like, what do I do, where do I go, they can feel comfortable in talking with an advocate and knowing that it's not going to be reported. Um, and so that kind of makes it a little bit a little bit more of a relaxed environment right. for the student to feel like, okay, I can kind of talk about things without being concerned about what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that changes the dynamic a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of kids that are afraid. Mm -hmm. Or that, they, yeah, their parents might right. find out, or yeah. they're not, like, they're going to have to deal with the cops or something, and sometimes they just need advice. Or and the an space unbiased, to talk. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. an unbiased party, and 
I know that, you know, sometimes it helps people that wouldn't normally be friends become friends, and they meet people that have been through similar situations and form really strong, really healthy relationships bonding over those things. That's great. Um, so besides the, the advocacy and the support groups and some of the education, what other services do you guys provide? Um, so we have a, a community resource advocate that will help with finding employment, finding housing, um, finding resources that will better their life or better their environment. Um, and then we have the legal advocate that will go into court and help with restraining orders um, and explaining what a restraining order is and how that protects the person as well as going through the criminal and civil court processes. Um, and then um, we have the support group for women that we have on um, the first and third Wednesday of the month from 4.30 to 5.30, and we do offer free childcare. If somebody just gives us a call, we'll make sure that we have another advocate that will be here for the children. Um, and then we also provide safety planning and safe housing. So um, if they are look if a victim or survivor needs safe housing and they want to go to a shelter, a 30-day shelter, there's um, shelters outside of the county in Platteville, Janesville, Beloit. Um, but if it's somebody who needs to stay in Greene County because their children are in school or they have a job in Greene County, um, we work with Family Promise, and we also have volunteers that offer their home as a safe home. Oh, wow. um, so they open up their home and have victims come stay with them for an undetermined period of time, depending on what the agreement is. Um, so it's just kind of, we get really creative with right. the resources that we're able to kind of put together. Well, and we we really understand that everybody's circumstances are different, and so right. we never we don't ever have like a black and white plan that has like this is step one, this is step two. Yeah. What we do is we really try to sit down, listen to what they need, um, prioritize what is needed to be done, and cater kind of a plan to their circumstances and their family. Some of our calls too. Um come from concerned family members, concerned friends who are witnessing their loved one or their friend in, a, in an unhealthy relationship, and um, they may see that person not ready to get out of the relationship yet, but they are trying to get as many resources or as many advices as they can get um, from us about how to help that person and how to be a supportive family member or friend as they're going through this bad relationship. Is there a lot of calls like that where it's it's not the, the victim per se but a family member? Mm -hmm. I would oh, say yes. mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. a lot of calls like that. I've, I've only been here a few months and I think the majority of the calls that I've taken have been like that. I mean, it might just be happenstance, but I see quite a bit. Yeah. Just from a short time. Well, and it's hard for outsiders to really understand the dynamics of a domestic violence relationship, but also understanding the barriers. And so they'll get frustrated with them by trying to support them right. if the person doesn't leave or continuously goes back to the relationship. They get frustrated, and so then they will be like, you know what, I've, tr I've helped you enough. I, I don't know what else to do for you. I'm sorry. And they get frustrated, and they walk off. Right. Um, and so 
you know, calling us, we can kind of give them maybe different options or different viewpoints as to, well, maybe this is what, what's going on yeah. or this is what's going on. And it's easy to judge if you don't understand. Yeah, and that, I think that education is important, like one-on-one, because you can put information out there on social media or events within the community, but not everybody's going to pay attention, so... Mm-hmm. And we encourage it. Like one of the first steps that they suggest if you have a child that's in a um, dating relationship that's violent um, is to be prepared or get informed ahead of time because a lot of times um, the knee-jerk reaction is to react. And a lot of times teens are really afraid of adults overreacting and then losing their ability to stay safe or losing their ability to be heard in the situation as a victim or a survivor. So we actually encourage people to get informed, and there's so much out on the internet for resources for parents or friends, family members of people that are going through dating violence experiences, but also, yeah, like just even calling us and getting more in-tuned advice about the situation and everything. Ultimately, there's not... There's nothing we can do to make anyone leave a relationship. Right. They know when the timing is right for them. Um, and so a lot of times family members just need that support to try to stay non-judgmental, try to stay supportive, because ultimately um, that is part of the safety of that person is keeping right. family members around. Right, which is hard to see someone go through that over and over again. It's, well, and being the supportive person, it is good to know what the resources are. For example, we collect cell phones at our agency. Um, so if you have a cell phone that you no longer use or you went and bought a new one, they can be broke. The screens can be broke. They might not even turn on. Um, but we collect cell phones, and then the ones that are good, we wipe them, and we keep them here at the office um, because a victim can use a cell phone to dial 911 with no service. Yeah. Um, it does connect them to the location so the police wouldn't be able to see where their location is but it's right but it's still that emergency connection Mm -hmm. so sometimes people will come in here and say you know my child has to go to the abuser's home for the weekend um and they they always take their phone away the minute they Mm -hmm. walk in the door and they don't get it back until the minute that they leave so we will have cell phones here that we can give to them that they can keep, you know, in a, a little location, right. keep them charged, and if there is an emergency that comes up, they can call 911. So those are just kind of like creative services that we have mm-hmm. that not everybody always needs, but that we have here if somebody is in need of right. if that. I think we try to be more over-prepared because we see so many different situations and yeah. they're all so individualized that just any scenario that could happen we try to at least have something here that might be able to start the process of getting right and how many people would think well i would need a almost like a burner phone yeah you know just to call 911 just in case you know i don't know how many people think of but then they don't have the money to get the you know like they the perpetrator would notice that there was money taken out of the account that would pay for that phone or you know something like that so it kind of might put people at more of a risk by trying to make a plan to escape where we have some of those things here where we can store things at our office, you know, legal documentation, immigration paperwork, things like that that people might need. So you guys provide just a ton of, like, almost wraparound services, it kind of seems like. Um, We also have a lot of community events um, throughout the year. Can you kind of 
tell everyone what those what those are? Yeah, so we do um, presentations at a lot of like the health school health fairs. PTOs will invite us in. Um, we do them, you know, at in school classrooms as well as community groups, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Optimists. Um, and we come in and we will cater the presentation to the audience, of course. But with students, we make it something fun. Mm -hmm. We always try to incorporate an art project or candy or something like that right. um, so that people know that a lot of times people are like, well, we don't know about if we want to have domestic violence advocates in to educate. We're not scary. We're not going to, you know, bring pictures daunting. of, like, big bruises yeah, yeah. and things like that. You know, we really try to cater it to the audience that we're meeting with and making sure that it's friendly and mm -hmm. acceptable and um, easily understood. Right. And you guys do a couple of fundraisers throughout the year as well. Yeah, we have two fundraisers throughout the year. Uh, we have our Mother's Day plant sale, um, and that's always Mother's Day weekend, so May 8th and 9th this year. Um, and we do have locations in Monroe, Monticello, and New Glarus. And then we have a pre-order form, so um, if you want a pre-order form, let us know. You can go on our website or give us a call and we can send you one. And then we have the scavenger hunt, which is in October, and the date will be um, determined next week, actually. So we'll be releasing the date for the 2020 October scavenger hunt. So how much is it for like a team to sign up for the scavenger hunt? Do you remember? <laughs> I think person. it's $20 a person. $20 a person. And it like really kind of taps into your knowledge of like Green County, right? Right. Like different oh, yeah. places. So it's kind of like a puzzle, and so the clues are um, put in creative fashion, um, and they you have about 12 locations that you go to, and it takes about two hours for the teams to do it. Um, it's always on a Saturday morning, so usually by noon you're out and able to do whatever you need to do the rest of the day. Um, but it's also kind of a fun thing to do because it's it's fall, all the trees are changing colors, so it's kind of a scenic way of getting to know Green County and learning kind of quirky things that you never knew maybe are in your backyard and you've lived here your whole life. Right. And it's competitive, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Competitive. <laughs> I, was, I was at the very first stop for the scavenger hunt this past year and seeing people fly up to Dunkin' Donuts for their little sticker and they're like, go, go, go. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was incredible to see people like going out and getting so excited about like That's a scavenger hunt. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have to be an adult to do the fundraiser. Right. You can have, you can be a 16 year old that puts a team together um, you, we do say that you usually want to have more than one person on your team um, just because it's easier to read clues and drive and right. figure out where you're going. Um, but really, there's not like a, you don't have to have five people on a team. You can kind of figure out what works best for you. So, nice. yeah. so what is your guys' website? So everybody can find where those events are? Our website is www.greenhaven.com the number four help.com um, otherwise you can call our office at 325-6489 that's our business line um, with any questions or anything that you might need resources um, and then we also have our 24-hour crisis line for victims um, and that is 325-7711 and that's a 24-hour 
right? Yes. 24 7. And they'll always have an advocate that's on the other okay. side of the line answering the phone and able to answer the questions or come in and meet them, yeah. whether they're at the police department or the emergency room or the motel or wherever they might be. Um, an advocate will be able to. And are meet with some them. of those volunteers? Yes. Um, So we do take volunteers to help us answer the crisis line. Um, The volunteer will actually uh, let us know what night works best for them. So let's say the second Tuesday of every month works best. They can let us know what time works best for them. So from 4 to 8 or 4 to 10 um, or overnight. So the volunteer actually can specify what days, what hours, um, and we actually just transfer the crisis line to their cell phone, so they're not required to be at our office or be okay. at home all the time. They're able to go do their regular things right. and, and able to answer the phone. What else do you guys um, have volunteers do around the office? or? We have, yeah, we have a board of directors, um, so we have tw- up to 12 volunteers that serve on the board, um, and they help to kind of help us direct our services um, from year to year. We also have people who come in and help with office work um, and like technology assistance. So if you have computer knowledge, um, we can always help, always use computer knowledge. <laughs> um, also like yard work, mowing the lawn, shoveling our sidewalks, those types of things we take volunteers. And they can be anywhere from 10 years old to 80 years old or 100 years old, you don't have to be an adult to volunteer at our office. So. Very cool. Social media, are you on Facebook and Instagram? And we are on Facebook. Facebook? Um, so Greenhaven does have a Facebook page. We are not on Instagram and Snapchat as of right now, but that's one thing that we're working on rolling out yeah. <laughs> we actually kind of a rebranding we're, yeah. we're we're actually working with synchronous right now right. um to have our website redone and our brochures redone um and so then we'll be able to then kind of play on that with yeah. instagram and snapchat and and making sure we're out there well thank you guys for the conversation and is there anything else you want to put out there before we end the in the conversation I think it's just important for everybody to understand, again, that domestic violence does happen in your backyard, in your community. Um, Greenhaven works with victims and survivors from Green County, and we have, on average, about 550 clients per year, unduplicated clients. So those people are coming in, you know, 20 times or 30 times a year. Um, But when people hear that number, I think, you know, sometimes it's just a number, but when you actually stop and take a minute to think about each one of those people have families and lives that are being influenced by violence and how we can support them and not judge them on the decisions that, you know, that they're having to face. Yeah. And when you think about like one in four, you're thinking like nationally, but when you say 500, then you know that 500 families in Green County were Well, and when you look at a classroom of 20 kids in a classroom and you say one in four, you know, look at how many people are sitting there that are in that can be in a a violent relationship. It's like half the town of Albany. Right. And if you think about that as like, oh, my God, that's a half a town of people. Mm -hmm. It's it kind of puts things in a little bit more of a perspective where it's like, wow, that could happen to anybody at any time. Yeah, it does happen a lot. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. For information of upcoming events and meetings, please visit our website at betterbroadhead.org and be sure to subscribe to our email list.